At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. For many years, many have asked the question, what if God was one of us? Through the incarnation of Jesus, God answered that question, and Jesus became one of us. Every year for centuries, Christians have celebrated the miracle of Jesus' birth. This Christmas season, we're diving into a new series, Emmanuel, God with us. Learning how the arrival of Jesus Christ changes everything. He came to save us, a broken and crooked world of fallen people. Join us this Christmas as we explore the miracle of Jesus' incarnation and the impact it still has on us. Morning. Merry Christmas. Hopefully you found Galatians 4. If not, I'd invite you to do so as we spend some time just reflecting on what it has to say to us together this morning. Uh, When I was growing up, they released a a new art form uh, called the Magic Eye. I don't know if you remember when this came out, but they were these printed images that had like all these crazy waves and designs and different things. And if you like looked at them the right way, there was like a hidden picture in the picture. So some of of you remember this, right? Growing up, I hated these things. And most of them, the reason I hated them was because I could never see what was actually you were supposed to see. And I would go through the whole rigmarole of like holding it to my face and drawing it out and crossing my eyes and somehow trying to unfocus the focus so I could actually, and I like could never get it. And eventually at some point, I remember probably as a teenager, I was like, ah, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm over it. Um, and then recently, a few years ago, as, as an adult, I don't know what changed. I don't know if my eyes magically healed somehow in age or whatnot, but I went to do a magic eye, and I actually got it. Like, I got the image, and I could see this weird 3D hidden picture and image, and I connected, and I was like, oh, this is what this is all about. And it was so illuminating to actually be able to see the kind of deeper picture that was hidden underneath all the kind of scattered pieces parts. When it comes to Christmas, I think oftentimes we fail to really see and connect with the deeper story or deeper picture that's underneath the story of Christmas. In our world, a lot of people kind of know the pieces parts of Christmas, right? The story of shepherds and angels and a baby born in a manger and all these sorts of things. But but sometimes in all of that and in kind of the hustle and bustle of traditions, we fail to actually connect and see the kind of deeper picture that's underneath. And so this morning, as we take some time to reflect on the Christmas story, I want to do so in a way that I think helps us try to see the deeper picture that's underneath all of it, to kind of connect with what that story really is all about. And so this morning, we're looking at a passage in Galatians chapter 4. It's not necessarily your normal Christmas passage, but I think it's a passage that helps us get to that deeper picture. And I hope through our time today, we can all connect a little bit more with what Christmas is all about. But to kind of get towards that a little bit, I want to begin this morning with a question. Are you free? Are you free? Now, my my guess is for most of us, when you ask that question, our natural response is, yeah, I am, right? I mean, I live in the land of the free, 
And one of the things we celebrate almost more than anything else in our culture is our freedom and the freedom that we have and the freedoms that we have in our society and culture. And I, my guess is most of us, when you say, are you free, would be, yeah, I'm, I'm free. But are you free in the way that matters most to be free? Is your soul free? Is your life free? When it comes to the reality of how you live, how you experience things, do you have a sense of freedom and levity to who you are, to your life? I often wonder that around the holidays. Because when I observe the world around us, I wonder if we actually have a sense or really actually live free. It's odd to me that this is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. And yet the truth is, if most of us think about the holidays, our reality is that we're overstressed, overspent, overanxious, overcommitted, overindulgent, and often overlook even the most magical, simple things within the season. And we don't often have a sense of freedom. I can tell you this. In the Walmart parking lot at 5 p.m. last night when I dropped my nephew off for work, I would not say the spirit of freedom reigned over that place. And I think if we're honest with ourselves and many people, that most of us don't actually feel free in the sense of what our hearts long for. And yet, I think that's actually the deeper picture that Christmas speaks towards. And I think that's what our passage is going to help us see, that the invitation to Christmas is an invitation to see a deeper picture of freedom. We've been in this series throughout our Advent season that we've called Emmanuel, God with us. That's a term used by Matthew, one of Jesus's earliest disciples, drawing from the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures in reference to Jesus as the Messiah. And throughout this season, we've been looking at passages that highlight the fact that in Jesus, God is with us. And Galatians 4 is another one of those God with us sort of passages. The letter to the Galatians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of churches that he had planted in Galatia, which was a province of the Roman Empire in what is now modern-day Turkey. Paul had planted several churches in that area and then left to go to plant other churches. And in the letter in Galatians, he writes a letter back to those churches to encourage them in the truth of the good news of Jesus. And he has all sorts of things that he wants to help them understand about what what Jesus is all about. But in Galatians chapter 4, he comes to the idea and the story of Christmas in kind of an unexpected way, but in an important way. And in this, he gives his audience, and I think even us this morning, three things to really consider around that story. The first one we see in verse 3. So if you would look at it with me, Paul begins chapter 4 with a little bit of an analogy, but in verse 3, he kind of comes to his focal point. He says this, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, Paul's going to get to the point of Christmas in a second, in Jesus' arrival, but the place that he begins for us this morning is by inviting us to recognize our condition. 
When Paul says in the same way, when we were children, Paul uses that language to describe people before they put their faith in Jesus. That's what he means by that term. And he uses it in several places in his letter. And what he wants his audience to know is that prior to their faith in Jesus, they were slaves. That's what he says. They were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. If you were to ask the Paul the question, are we free? His firm answer would be no, we are not free. We are actually enslaved. We're in bondage to what or to whom? Well, he's clear, to the elementary principles of the world. Paul uses that language to describe the world apart from the rule and reign of God. You see, God had designed the world and created it to be a place of flourishing and harmony and justice and life. For all, and he had set human beings up and his delegated rulers in his place. But human beings had rebelled against God. They threw off his rule. They desired to rule themselves instead. And because of that, they actually enslaved themselves under the reign of the very things that were opposed to God. Instead of the world being under and experiencing the flourishing of justice and harmony and life, Instead, what marks the world is unrighteousness, injustice, brokenness in relationship with God and one another. And what Paul wants us to see is that apart from Christ, this is our condition. We are actually enslaved under these principles. And if you don't buy that, let me submit to you a couple of questions that I think at least get towards why Paul would say this and why I would argue this is our reality as well. Have you ever stopped for a moment to wonder why it seems that our world never seems to improve, at least in the ways that really matter? How come it seems like for all our technological advances, for all the places we've come in human society, if you still look the world over, we're marked by injustice, a lack of flourishing, We don't see the same rights for everyone. We don't even see the ability to get along in peace. I mean, just think about this simple fact. More food is produced today than in the history of humanity. And yet there are more people starving today than there has ever been in the world. We have more resources, and yet we can't even seem to get the resources to people because of the brokenness that exists in our world. Let me submit to you a second question that I think highlights our enslavement. Have you ever wondered why you struggle so much to break free by what traps you and actually works against the good in your life? I experience it every Christmas. I'm not going to overeat, I'm not going to overeat, I'm not going to overeat. And I wake up this morning and I haven't even made it to Christmas yet. And I'm already kicking myself. And how many of us have things in our lives, that's just simple, I have other things in my life that we struggle against time and time again. Oh, if I could just get over that, if I could just move beyond that, if I could just release that, and yet we struggle and fall trapped to it time and time again. Could it be that we are actually enslaved? That we're actually in bondage to the very things we don't want to be? And what Paul wants you to see is, that's the case. Not only he wants you to see it, he wants you to feel it and recognize that that is our condition. 
Sometimes I think we're so good at deceiving ourselves that that's actually true. And I wish for a moment we could. I I was reminded a little bit of this, um, the reality of enslavement uh, this past summer. I got the chance to travel to Washington, D.C. and visit the uh, African American History Museum. And if you ever go there, I would, I would highly encourage it. Um, the designers of the museum have actually designed it in a very intentional way. So the journey of the museum actually begins on the very bottom floor. And when you go, you, you wait in a queue because it's usually um, really uh, full and crowded. And so what they'll do is they'll usher you into an elevator with a whole group of people. And then they take you down to the bottom floor. And then the journey moves from the bottom floor up. And um, it's intentional to connect with the story and the plight of African Americans in American culture. But where the journey begins is you get off the elevator with this whole crowd of people, and the place that it begins is uh, in dealing with the reality of transatlantic slavery. And so they have all sorts of things like a normal museum, but what you note at first is that where you're at is very tight and narrow. So it's like a whole crowd of people, and you're ushered into this very narrow place. And as you move through the museum, you're like bumping into people and trying not to step, and it's like crowded and packed, and you move, and it's actually intentionally designed that way. The designers of the museum wanted to give those that visit a feeling, in some sense, like an emotional connection and feeling with the reality of slavery. And so they purposely made it slightly uncomfortable. So you could begin there and then step in throughout the rest of the journey to kind of see through that. And and it really works. It actually creates a very powerful emotional experience as you journey through the museum and where it starts. And just trying to help us get for a moment a glimpse and plight of what those that suffered under slavery went through, even just by being uncomfortable for a minute. I think if the Apostle Paul could take us to like the History of Humanity Museum, he would take us to that sort of place. He would draw us into narrow quarters and tight hallways, bumping into each other to help us get the picture. You're not actually free. The reality of humanity is actually an enslavement. It's in a bondage. Because if you're going to understand the story of Christmas and see it for the good news that it is and its deeper picture, you have to start with your reality. And that's what Paul's trying to drive home here. When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And the truth is, apart from Christ, all of us are enslaved. Even to the good things that we pursue in light, they end up enslaving us. Whether it's our career, others' opinions, money, food, alcohol. Maybe it's that relationship we put our hope in. And the reality is, none of those are bad things in and of themselves, but so often we turn them into God's that we think will be the answer for the meaning and purpose of our life, and yet we find ourselves stuck in the same cycle, the same issues, the same things, enslaved. And what Paul wants us to recognize is we won't experience the deeper freedom that Christmas is meant to bring unless we recognize our condition. But once we do, then Paul invites us to hear the best news ever. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
As Paul calls us to recognize our condition, he then invites us to trust in God's saving action. Note how he starts verse 4 with the word, but there is a, excuse me, a contrast here between our condition and what God does in light of our reality. And then he gives us the truth of Christmas. If you want the story and truth and deeper reality of Christmas in one verse, here it is. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. And in this one verse, Paul gives us the design of Christmas, he gives us the action of Christmas, and he gives us the purpose of Christmas. He begins by reminding us that the story of Christmas has a design, right? He says, but when the fullness of time had come. Growing up, my parents used to use the phrase all the time, timing is everything. And timing does, in fact, matter. And what Paul wants you to know is that what took place in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago had a very specific time. It was on purpose. Jesus came exactly when he was supposed to. Right? When, when any baby is conceived, then they naturally go to the hospital and they give you a due date, right? This is when that baby's going to come. And I don't know about you, but I hit my due date right on the money. And the joke is, I don't think I've ever been on time since. But what Paul wants you to recognize is Jesus had an eternal due date. He had an exact moment when he was supposed to come. And he didn't miss it. He nailed it right on time. It wasn't accidental. It was purposeful. And that's a significant claim in the reality of our world and universe and the history of humanity, the reality that Jesus came and it wasn't accidental is purposeful and it informs the very claims of Christianity. Because listen, when it comes to our world and universe, there are three ways that you can think about reality around us. Our world is either accidental, it's causal, or it's purposeful. Some will claim that our world is simply accidental that it emerged through random processes and chances over millions of years, but there's no inherent design or purpose, that it is chance that led us to where we are today. This is the claims of evolution. This is the claims of secularism. This is the reality. Our world doesn't have a deeper meaning or purpose. Enjoy it while you can. When it's over, it's over. And at some point, we all absorbed up into the sun. The world is simply accidental. That's it. The second claim of the world is that our world is causal. This is the claim of many religions, that there is a deity, but that deity just kind of started things in a process of action and reaction, that there really is no inherent purpose in things that you experience or go through our world, but there's just cause after cause after cause. But the claim Paul makes, the claims that Christians would make for years in the reality of Jesus, that actually our universe is purposeful that there is a providence to it, that God has designed it, he has a plan for it, and he's working out that plan, and that there's a purpose. Jesus didn't just come accidentally. He didn't just come because someone else caused something to happen, and then, well, I guess now he's going to come. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. It was purposeful and intentional when he did. And if the timing of Jesus' arrival was purposeful, then this to me reveals that there is a purpose in our world and in our lives. That God does have a plan and he is working that plan. And that's the design of Christmas. But not only that, Paul gives us the action 
in God's work of the Christmas story. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And the idea that God sent his son, Paul emphasizes Jesus' pre-existence. Jesus wasn't created. Jesus didn't just all of a sudden come into being when he was born. Jesus is the divine son of God. Eternal in relationship with God forever. The second person of the Trinity for all of eternity. He is uncreated. Therefore, he is sent, Paul says. One scholar, a New Testament scholar on this passage notes that when Paul says this, he says, God sent his son, not just from Galilee to Jerusalem, nor just from the manger to the cross, but all the way from heaven to earth. The full implication of this text can hardly be grasped in human language. In sending Jesus, God did not send a substitute or a surrogate. He came himself. That's the nature of Christmas. The action is God sent himself in Jesus. But it even goes on. That in that sending, he was born of a woman and born under the law. While Paul, by sending, emphasizes Jesus' divinity, here he emphasizes the true humanity of Jesus. That Jesus was truly God and truly man. Not only that, he was under the law, referencing the Old Testament law, that he came and submitted himself under those righteous requirements, which is even more of a mystery, that the one who gave the law comes and submits himself under the law. And if at this point, the picture feels a little hazy, if you're kind of at that point where you're like, where is the focus here? Feels like we're getting a little deep. Well, that's Paul's point, because what he wants you to see is that Jesus is unique. And because he's unique, he's the one who can actually accomplish the salvation that we need from what we're enslaved under. One of my favorite pastors, John Stott, writes of this passage what is emphasized in these verses is that the one whom God sent to accomplish our redemption was perfectly qualified to do so. He was God's son. He was also born of a human mother so that he was human as well as divine, the one and only God-man. And he was born under the law, that is, of a Jewish mother into the Jewish nation, subject to the Jewish law. Throughout his life, he submitted to all the requirements of the law. He succeeded where all others before and since have failed. He perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of the law. So the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them the sons of God. He wants you to see the truth and uniqueness of who Jesus is. And if you're wrestling with those ideals this morning, I mean, Joel mentioned earlier, that's why we have this book available to you at our Connect desk. If you want to dig deeper into why we believe that's true, we want you to wrestle with that truth because we think it's so important. Because what Paul wants you to see about the uniqueness of Jesus is that it leads ultimately to the purpose that Jesus accomplishes in the story of Christmas. Because ultimately, he is sent forth, he is born of a woman, he's born under the law, but here's the purpose, to redeem those who are under the law. That language of redeem, it's the, taken from the slave market in Paul's day. 
It's to buy out of slavery and bring into freedom. In, in Paul's day, slavery was different than how it's been experienced in America and transatlantic slavery because oftentimes slavery was because of debt. There were other reasons as well, but that was one significant one. And therefore, a slave could actually be redeemed. They could purchase their freedom. It wasn't based on skin color or culture or anything like that. And so a slave, when they would pay the price in order to be set free, they would be redeemed. That's what the word means. What Paul wants you to see is you and I are eternally enslaved under, because of our sin, under the principles of the world. We couldn't pay that price, but Jesus came as the uniquely qualified one, truly God, truly man, truly righteous, to pay the price so that we could be taken from slavery to freedom. Paul says this earlier, even more clearly in the book of Galatians. In Galatians 3.13, he says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, the purpose of the Christmas story is for Jesus to offer himself in our place so that we could be redeemed. That's the deeper picture. I, I was reminded of this picture uh, recently, maybe to just help you connect a little bit with what I think Paul's trying to say here in an illustrative way. I was reminded of this picture recently this fall because my son was in uh, uh, the musical The Little Mermaid, which is based on the Disney movie. And I think in some ways, the Dis it gives us a great picture of this idea that Paul unpacks in Galatians 3.13, right? Because if you remember the story of the Little Mermaid, Ariel has this idea and longing for to live in the other world, like the, the, the world of human beings. But in her kind of desire for that, she willingly goes to the sea witch, Ursula, to make a deal. And she kind of offers herself under Ursula's law, you give me legs, Right? And if you, and Ursula essentially says, that's fine, but if you don't get the prince to kiss you in three days, then I get your soul forever, right? You got to live with me in my watery dungeon for all of eternity. And so Ursula goes up, or Ariel goes up, and what does she do? She fails the requirements of the law. She doesn't get Prince Eric to kiss her. And so she's bound by the contract, and she's brought into Ursula's lair, and she has to live. Her soul now belongs to her and has to live in her watery grave of eternity until what happens her dad comes king triton and he willfully offers himself in her place he says i'll take that curse so that she can be free that's the idea here it's not the perfect analogy there's some faults although i think it is fascinating when you draw the conclusion and recognize that Ursula thinks she wins by gaining Triton's soul, but it's actually the way in which she opens herself up to the very defeat that will then be experienced. The truth in Jesus is Satan thinks he wins when he conquers the Son of God on the cross, but it's actually the very way he opens himself up to Jesus's victory over him. But that's the picture Paul's trying to get. You and I failed the requirements we didn't get the prince to kiss us. We are under enslavement. Our souls are bound to the enemy, destined for death and the grave and an eternal separation from God. But Jesus becomes the curse. He comes as a human being to offer himself in our place 
so that you and I could be set free, so that he could conquer the enemies that stand against us, and that we could actually be restored to the very world that we were created for, a world under God's rule and reign with righteousness and justice and flourishing and life for all. Christ comes as our redemption. When we put our faith in Jesus, he takes our curse, and we get his freedom and life. But we get more than just redemption. Because what does that look like in that point of redemption? And Paul wants you to see that even in the aspect of redemption, it's not just that we're redeemed from something, but we're actually redeemed for something. Look at verse 5 again. To redeem, so Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law. Now here's the even deeper purpose. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul uses the language of sons, not to exclude you ladies, but because that was what inherited blessing in his culture. So he's trying to communicate to you that you were given adoption so you would receive the inheritance and blessing that God has for you in Jesus. And so Paul encourages not only trust in God's saving action, but receive his adoption. The greater purpose in Jesus's redemption is adoption, that we now get to become sons and daughters of God. Not just to know him abstractly, but to know him intimately, to know him in relationship. And God confirms that, Paul says, by sending the spirit of his son into our hearts to cry, Abba, Father. It's the spirit of God that comes to confirm we are God's children. When you put your faith in Jesus, you not only receive redemption, you receive adoption. You get to know God as dad. That's the idea and the terms here. They're a term of family intimacy. So for many years now, the term that I use to refer to my dad is pops. It's my special term. I've called him pops for years. And if you would hear me talk to him, that's my term for him. So when I call him up on the phone, I'm, hey pops, how you doing? Right? When Paul uses the language Abba, father, it's that kind of idea. That's the term Jesus used for God as God's son. And what Paul wants you to see is when you trust in Jesus and receive adoption, you get that sort of intimacy. God becomes your pops. He becomes your dad. Not just an abstract God out there, but an intimate fatherly God that you come to know. Again, Professor George is helpful here when he says, the Holy Spirit is the sign and pledge of our adoption so that by his presence in our hearts, we are truly convinced that God is for us, not against us, that indeed he is our heavenly father. You see, it's by the spirit of God that we come to know freedom and it's a freedom of relationship. And when you know the freedom of relationship, that changes everything. It allows you to live life with a different sense, not defined by your circumstances around you, but to know you are loved and cared for no matter what. One of the great mysteries of parenting is why your kid acts better for other people than they do for you. 
every parent knows this reality, right? You drop your kid off at kids ministry, you talk to your teacher, they're like, oh man, your daughter's so nice and sweet and awesome. She's the best. You're like, my kid? You mean the kid that was just yelling at me five minutes ago on the drive over here? Who doesn't listen to what I, that kid? I don't think we're talking about the same kid, right? I think we're talking about someone, like we all know that reality as a parent and it's one of the great mysteries, but it's actually not that great of a mystery. There's a reason that that is true. One psychologist in an article entitled, Why Does My Child Behave Better for Others Than He Does for Me? Notes this. She says, all of this bad behavior is reserved for us, their parents, their safe people who love them unconditionally. In other words, it is actually a compliment if your child misbehaves for you, but behaves for everyone else. They feel safe. And know you will love and protect them no matter what. When kids feel safe, they feel the freedom to be themselves, flaws and mistakes and all. Now, I share that not to highlight bad behavior. But when you come to know Jesus, you get that sort of relationship. The sort of safety the sort of love that says, I'll take you and care for you and hold on to you no matter what flaws and all. That's freedom. Because when you know that sort of love, when you know that sort of intimacy and connection with the God of heaven, that allows you to live life no matter what. That allows you to know that no matter how far you've messed it up, you are still loved. That lets you know that no matter what challenges you might be facing and the circumstances of your life or trial that you are going through, that God has not given up on you and he cares for you and that he works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, Paul says in Romans. To know that sort of love is to know a Savior who says in John 14, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's the sort of love that you get to experience. And my friends, that's freedom. That's life. That's the ability to have a soul that's not defined by what's around you, but can live with the sort of levity and joy that has a solid foundation no matter what. That's where peace is found. St. Augustine famously once stated, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. If you find your heart restless this season, let me tell you, there is rest to be found, and it's found in Jesus by putting your faith in him. That's what the Christmas story is all about. It's a story about a God who came to redeem us so that we could be his sons and daughters, so that we could receive his eternal blessing and inheritance, to know a love that is constant, permanent, no matter what. That's why Paul goes on in Ephesians 5.1 to say it's for freedom Christ set us free. Therefore, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ has set us free. 
And that's why Paul, through all of this, is pleading with us through reminding us of the truth and deeper picture of the story of Christmas. Embrace God's redemption. Embrace God's redemption in Jesus. Know that freedom, that joy, that life. It is available to you. How? By simply putting your faith in him. By trusting that he's your savior. He took the curse for you. He went to that cross to die for your sins. And he rose again to defeat the enemies of Satan's sin and death. So you can know life, know it to the full, and carry it on into eternity. It's the trust that he is Lord and King over all, that he has a purpose and a plan that he's working out in your life, in this world. And one day he will return to redeem all things, to put an end to sin and death, or we will enjoy flourishing in life forever. When you embrace Jesus, you get a love that you will know now that changes everything and will never if you've never put your faith in Jesus, we would invite you to do that today. Trust in him as Savior and Lord. And if you have, then be reminded that the story of Christmas is a story of a Jesus who comes for redemption and that you've been adopted into God's family. You are loved. You are cared for. You are free. That's the deeper picture. And it's the invitation of the story. I was reminded recently how sometimes we can miss some of the deeper symbolisms that actually lead towards invitation by Dr. Tony Evans. He notes in one of his books, he notes how um, there's a symbol of freedom in our culture that stands in New York Harbor. Most people miss it, the symbolism. Thousands pass it every day but fail to recognize what it actually speaks to underneath. But Lady Liberty stands there as a shining invitation to the pursuit of liberty within our society. And it's endowed with symbolism often overlooked. She holds a torch that's meant to be a light and a path. On her crown are seven, her crown has seven points symbolizing the seven continents and the seven seas. At her feet is a chain that's actually been broken, symbolizing the release from bondage. And on her pedestal is the plaque that reads, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, tempt toss to me. And for over a hundred years, she stood as a symbol, but also an invitation to join in our pursuit of liberty. And when you see the symbolism, you begin to recognize the invitation itself the deeper picture that it points to. In many ways, the story of Christmas is like that. It's endowed with symbols, symbols we know well, but that are meant to be a greater invitation to the message of freedom that it proclaims, a greater freedom, a freedom for the soul, a freedom that cannot be taken away and one offered by God himself. For in the story of Christmas, God sends his son to redeem us. And he sends him in a lonely manger to an unwed mother, celebrated by lowly shepherds and foreign strangers. 
And through all that, God's trying to shout to the nations, here's redemption and freedom right here. Don't miss the symbol. It's for everyone. It's not just for the great of us, the best of us, the ones who have their act together. It's for all people from everywhere, from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. It's for the greatest and the least, the mighty and the lowly. He was told to be named Jesus because he'll save a people from his sins. Even his name is a symbol of the freedom that he comes to offer. And the angels gather to say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill on whom his favor rests. A reminder that he is here for redemption and for you to experience life and peace. And so all these are symbols, true symbols, in a true story that's meant to invite you to experience freedom. The story of Christmas is one of redemption and an invitation to the whole world to follow Jesus on the path of true freedom. The question is, will you receive that invitation today? I pray that you would. And as you do, I trust it will change everything. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we stop for a moment on this Christmas Eve as we worship together to just say thank you for sending your son. It's an amazing reality that this was your eternal plan, purpose before the foundations of the world to offer yourself in Jesus Christ on our behalf to take our curse on yourself so that we might be set free from our slavery. And so, God, we, we humble ourselves this morning to say thanks for that truth. And now I pray as we just prepare to respond for a few moments together that you would work to, to take the truth of this passage and bring its weight upon our heart. Would you remove the lens of our self-deception where we're so good at convincing ourselves that we're okay and just for a moment, let our souls feel the need that we all have to be set free from the elementary principles of this world. Spirit, would you work to bring the truth of Jesus to bear as Savior and Lord on our hearts and would you allow us to respond and receive him with faith this morning, maybe some of us for the first time, Maybe for others, just a deepening of our trust in Christ. And then would you empower us to respond in worship? Let us know that love that's available to us. And as we feel and receive it this morning, would you give us and let us respond with the sort of joy that makes much of you in our lives and in our world. So we invite you to just do your work now among us as we continue to remember what you've done so long ago and the true story of Christmas. We love you. We ask this in your name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.